the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hello, Bay Area and KDOW audience. It's great to be back on the air today. I am live today, so if you want to give a call with a question, it's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. want to let you know I do have one of my Living Trust seminars tomorrow morning in my office starting at 9 o'clock. That's my office in San Jose on Saratoga Avenue near the Westgate Shopping Center. If you'd like to register, you can go to lawbob.com or go to eventbrite.com and search for the Living Trust Seminar, and you'll find me right away, and you can go ahead and register. Space is limited, so if you'd like to come, make sure that you register uh, and get your spot reserved. In the past several weeks, I've been doing um, a continuing continuing uh, effort to bring more information to people, specifically more information about uh, different problems that people are facing around the state of California. I have found that it is often the case that a problem that someone's experiencing in one part of the state is being experienced by someone else in another part of the state, or they experienced it in the past. We have a big state here. We have about 10% of the population of the country here in California. So it's not surprising that a lot of situations would come up over and over again. So without further ado, let me jump right into the first segment of the show today. Here's an inquiry out of San Diego, California. And it has um, kind of an interesting situation. A trust was set up by Grandma. And it's currently being administered by mom. Uh, Mom's the trustee and has the right to use income from the trust for her living needs. Now, this is not an unusual kind of trust. It's probably a lifetime trust that says mom can use the income for her lifetime and then it will be passed on to the next generation. In this case, that's exactly what it says. Now, the trust gives mom something called a special power of appointment. Special power of appointment is basically the right to decide where the property in an irrevocable trust goes when the beneficiary dies, even though the beneficiary does not actually own that property. A special power of appointment is limited in how it can be used. um, And by having it be a special power of appointment, the property in that trust 
will not be included in the taxable estate of the beneficiary when the beneficiary dies. So these types of trusts with special power appointment were often set up because they were worried that there would be a federal estate tax when the beneficiary died if the value of the property was included in their taxable estate. In this case, this remainder beneficiary, this is one of the grandchildren, has received a consent and waiver of notice asking for all of the beneficiaries and the remainder beneficiaries of the trust to agree to permit mom to get what's called a general power of appointment. A general power of appointment, if it was changed, and this is something that can often be done even with an irrevocable trust, make changes to what the trust says. A general power of appointment would cause the property to be included in mom's estate when mom dies. Now, why would you intentionally want to do that? Because if you include the property, especially if it's real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things like that, in the taxable estate at death, then that property gets revalued for capital gains income tax purposes to the current market value when that, in this case, when mom dies. So that's actually a really, really good benefit. This person wants to know that, hey, are there other implications than what I was told. This uh, this person was told, hey, it's to achieve what's called the step-up basis in taxes. But they want to know, what if I sign and agree to this? Could I be removed as a remainder beneficiary or have the amount left to me changed? That's an excellent question. If this is a true general power of appointment, this person has hit it right on the head. If mom can now decide who gets what, when, how, and how much, and could even change the beneficiaries, then that means this particular person who may already have a vested interest in receiving property when mom dies, they could be cut out at the other end. So this person's pretty sharp, I'll tell you. That's something to look for if uh, someone comes and says they want to put in a general power of appointment for income tax purposes. That's always the downside, which is that person could change the rules and actually change the whole structure of the trust in the process. Now here, this person said, if I buy whole life insurance, and whole life insurance means insurance that's intended to be around for your entire life or your whole life, you'll probably keep paying for it every year as long as you're alive. If I buy whole life insurance and name a beneficiary, can child support take it from that beneficiary when I die? So if the life insurance is paid to the person's estate and they owe child support, then yes, um, that is a claim against the estate. If someone sets up an insurance trust buys life insurance inside the insurance trust and then names beneficiaries there, if it's set up properly, that life insurance is not part of their estate and would also not be subject to being taken for any kind of creditor's claim, um, including um, basically child support. Now, here's someone who was asked to sign a waiver of notice of proposed action 
to sell real estate in a probate matter. What that means is the executor administrator in a probate, that's the person that's put in charge of the probate by the judge, may sometimes get authority to act under what's called the Independent Administrations of Estates Act, which permits the person to actually take a lot of actions without going to court and getting court approval all the time. Here, a notice of proposed action is usually used when real estate is going to be sold, and you basically serve notice to all the people in the probate who are the beneficiaries, and then you file the notice with the court, and after the time expires on the notice, you can then take the action to sell the property. That's usually what it's used for. Now here, if this is done, can this person, if I sign this, can the executor sell the property to his family for way less than market value so his family can sell it later at a higher price after the probate? And when will I find out that it was sold for way less than market value, assuming this is even allowed by law? Well, let me tell you right now. If the executor sold property of the estate under its market value to family members, that would be self-dealing. That would be set aside by a court in half a second. Uh, It is not allowed by the law. It's not allowed by the probate law. That person would be removed, and, uh, and they might actually potentially be facing um, some form of criminal charges, maybe even embezzlement charges for acting in that way. So we're coming up on the end of the first segment today. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. If you want to give a call, 800-516-1220. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B.com. And uh, I'll be happy to uh, questions you may have, maybe read them on the air and give some answers to them. So we come back after the break. We'll continue on with this questions and comments show today here on Plan Your Estate Radio. This is Attorney Bob Bergman, and I'll get back to you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. I'm going to continue on in the second segment of the show today with with some more questions and comments from around this great state of California. Here's one out of Los Angeles, and, and this is, I know, a very common situation because I run into it two or three times a year when people come to me um, sometimes quite a bit later after a parent has passed away. Parent had a house and family members have been living in the house ever since the parent died. And often there's no mortgage on the property, which means that there's no lender involved. And and uh, so people just continue staying in the house. Maybe they were staying with mom or dad taking care of them, and then they just stay afterwards. So here, this person said, mom and dad passed away, and they were the only two on the deed to the house. In this case, the house is paid in full, now worth about $450,000. Well, that's probably not in the South Bay where I'm at, but let's go past that. Some of the family wants to stay in the home for another two years before we go through probate. Can that be done? 
Well, the short answer is, yes, it can be done, only in the sense that it's done all the time. The implied in that question is, is it a good idea or is it appropriate to do that? And I would say no. Um, For one thing, you need to make sure that if, uh, depending on who the property is going to, um, it may end up qualifying to have an exclusion from reassessment of the real property taxes, or it may have a reassessment of the taxes for some or all of it, depending on who is now going to receive the property through the probate. The other thing is, if the family decided, hey, we need to sell this property right away, they're going to be stuck because mom and dad's name are on the title and they can't borrow against the property. They can't sell it. They really can't do anything involving the title as long as the parents' names are on the title. In this case, there's two parents' names on the title, which means they're really looking at two probates. Um, Unless the property was owned so that the surviving spouse of the two, of mom or dad, actually received it because it was held as joint tenants or something like that, this family might actually be looking at two different probates to get this property uh, taken care of. And that is an issue. That's a very big issue for this family. Now, here's the question um, from Rancho Cucamonga. I've always loved the name of that, of that city, Rancho Cucamonga. If my house has a lien, can it still be placed in a revocable trust, or do I have to pay the lien off prior to placing it? Okay. If you make a revocable living trust, you can put your house into a living trust even if it has a lien against it. For example, if you have a mortgage on the house, that's a lien that's a, or a, cha- a claim against the house. So whether that's a creditor's lien or a mortgage lien or a tax lien or whatever it is, you can put the property into a living trust. It doesn't affect the lien at all. In fact, a creditor could actually um, go ahead and, and foreclose on the house if they pursue the lien through the legal system in order to do that. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Mom died, left a trust for my brother, my nephew, and myself. I'm the executor. Uh, We didn't believe her estate qualified for probate because in California, the limit is $150,000. Okay, $150,000 of uh, property. If it's not more than $150,000 of property, then there is uh, no need for any kind of probate action. Now, when we began liquidating mom's property, we found more money than we thought, and we now know that her estate, meaning the property that she owns outside of her trust would qualify for probate. Now, we've already dispersed funds from the sale of her house, which presumably was in her trust, and have spent some of it. What am I legally required to do at this point? What are the consequences of not reporting the mistake? Well, finding more money, it kind of begs the question, If they found more money, it was actually in accounts owned by the trust, by mom's trust. It's not subject to probate, and the $150,000 limit is meaningless. The $150,000 limit is property that is in someone's name 
or payable to their probate estate after they have died. If they discovered, for example, a bank account or brokerage account that had more than $150,000, then what they're probably going to need to do is go to court with what's called a Hegstat petition. A Hegstat petition is designed to use written evidence of the intent, in this case of the mom, that that property be part of her trust during her lifetime or after her death. There could be a schedule of assets that lists that. Here in Santa Clara County, if mom had a pour-over will that said, turn that probate property over to my trust after I die, that would be sufficient. And a Hegstat will actually enable the court to order the property into the trust without going through the entire probate process. So that's a really, really useful tool. I do probably a half a dozen or more of those a year when families come in, and we find that there's what I call the the loose toy on the ground that didn't make it into the trust toy box. Well, here we can do it pretty quickly and efficiently and get that property in the trust so they don't have to go through the nine months or 12 months or more of a probate in order to get that taken care of. So here we go. Um, Kind of related. Uh, Mom died a year ago, didn't leave a will. It's just me and my brother. We always had a joint bank account with mom. So what money we had, we already had access to. Mom didn't think she needed a will, a power of attorney, or executor. Now there's this class action settlement check made out to mom. How do we cash it? Well, coming off of that earlier question there, um, if the amount of this check is less than $150,000, then the the brothers can actually go and prepare what's called an affidavit of small estate value and submit that to whoever issued the class settlement check and request that it be instead turned over to them as the only heirs of their mother. Absent that, if it's more than $150,000, then they're actually going to have to start a probate called an intestate probate because mom had no will. And that's going to be the only way they'll actually be able to eventually cash and receive that settlement check. So we're coming up on the midpoint of the show today. I hope you've learned some things so far. I urge you to stay for the second half. There's going to be more questions and comments in the second half. If you want to give me a call, 800-516-1220, you can email me at radio at lawbob.com. And I just want to remind you, I do have a seminar tomorrow morning in my office at 9 o'clock, my Living Trust Seminar. So when we come back after the break for the second half of the show, we'll continue on with more questions and comments. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. So let's see here. Oh, you know how uh, before the break I was talking about Hegstat petitions? 
Well, here's another one out of Sacramento that looks like it qualifies for the same thing. Mom created a Rebel Living Trust a few years ago. The family didn't do anything with the trust. In other words, bank accounts were not changed to accounts owned by the trust. Now let me pause right here. Creating a living trust is only step one to actually getting all the benefits of a living trust. Some of the benefits include having your property in the trust, avoid conservatorship, which is a guardianship for an adult, if you become disabled because you can name somebody to handle the property in the trust for you, pay your bills, do investments, all those kinds of things. It also avoids probate, but only to the extent that you have property in the trust ownership when you die. So if you create a living trust and you never fund it, which, by the way, funding is the legal terminology for retitling assets or property that you own into the name of your trust, things like your house, bank accounts, brokerage accounts, um, those kinds of things, stocks, bonds, um, mutual funds, all those kinds of things, not retirement plans, by the way. They cannot be put into a living trust because they're already in a trust. And if you put them in your trust, it triggers a distribution of 100% of the retirement plan the year that you make that mistake. So don't do that. So here now, mom has passed away, and the family's trying to figure out what do we do to transfer her property to her trust? Well, the Hegstat petition comes to mind. But the problem is, with the Hegstat is, it's not treated the same way, <coughs> excuse me, it's not treated the same way everywhere in California. What I mean by that is every probate court in every county has different judges. It's not the same judge everywhere in the state. So the interpretation of the Hegstat laws is going to be different from county to county. For example, here in Santa Clara County, where I practice, if someone had a living trust and all that was left after they died was a special will called a pour-over will, and there was no other written evidence of intent that property be in their trust after death or during their lifetime. Here in Santa Clara County, that's still sufficient evidence of intent to get the property transferred into the trust, as long as everybody whose interests are affected say, we're cool with that. We don't want to we don't want to fight about it. We want it in the trust because that's a good thing. We don't want to go through probate because that's a bad thing. Some counties, though, take the position that you need more than just a pour over will. Um, I know some counties in Southern California that are that way. I don't practice down there, but I have colleagues in my uh, Wealth Council network that practice down there, and they tell me that they absolutely can't do that with just a pour over will. It takes more. It takes an asset schedule or a general assignment of assets or a mention in the trust itself or a letter where the person stated their intention, something like that, to support that the property should be in the trust without going through the whole probate process using the pour-over will to eventually get it into the trust. So that is a big issue. Here, this family could try a Hegstat but they want to check with a local practitioner where they're at, which is Sacramento County, to see if they can do that with the documentation from mom's estate plan that they have on hand. 
it may be that there's not sufficient documentation to do it, and they'll have to actually submit the will and go through the probate process. Hopefully there is a will. If there isn't a will, then it becomes an intestate probate by definition, and they'll definitely have to go through the probate process, and nothing will actually end up in their mother's will because if she didn't have a pour-over will, she didn't have a will at all to direct things to go into her trust. As you can see, estate planning is not easy. There's a lot of complexity, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. I see uh, things every day coming um, in from my sources about things that have gone wrong, and I share some of them here on my show. Here's someone in Southern California said, I got my inheritance. Can I quit claim it to my sister? Says, I don't want my inheritance. Can I quit claim it? Well, first of all, quit claim actually refers to um, real estate where you actually file a special type of deed called a quit claim deed, and that transfers whatever interest you have in that property to whomever you transfer it to in the deed. So if this is real estate this person inherited, they could quit claim to their sister, but but they may want to be very careful about that. Um, if they inherited it from a parent and it's real estate, then they may qualify to have the property taxes stay at the lower rates that the parent had. If it's quit claimed to the sister, that will trigger a reassessment of whatever interest was quit claimed, whether it's half of it or a third or 100% of it. And that could actually then cause the property taxes to go up, maybe significantly go up if the property's been owned for a long, long time. So I would urge someone like that, look very carefully. If you want it to go to your sister, maybe you should set up a trust yourself and leave it to your sister at your death unless you just don't want it at all. Then be aware that if you quit claim it or give it away to your sister, um, if it's real estate, it's going to trigger a reassessment. If it's other property, you have made a taxable gift either way. Technically, you're supposed to file a gift tax return with the IRS. Most people don't. And if there was no taxable estate when that happened, it's probably no harm, no foul. But um, a gift tax return would also have to be filed by this person who wants to quit claim their inheritance to their sister. Now here, this is a this is a situation I know comes up all the time. Okay, so the grantor of a trust is part of a bank account that was a joint account, like a joint tenancy account, uh, and now because of death, that joint account now has a single account owner who is the other joint tenant, because that's what it said on the title. Does California Living Trust Law force that account owner to pour funds over into the deceased account owner's living trust? Well, the short answer is no. Um, if it was a joint tenancy account, that's pretty clear evidence that it was not intended, at least it's the starting point evidence, that it was not intended to be part of the person's living trust. That's why they named someone to receive the property when they died. However, um, that doesn't necessarily end the discussion. If there was an agreement between 
those people, the grantor of the trust and the person on the account, maybe it was in fact their money and they put the person on as a joint tenant so that they would have access to the funds after death, access pretty much almost right away, which is not accurate, but pretty much right away so they could handle things like pay funeral expenses, stuff like that. But there was an agreement. Maybe there was a written agreement. Maybe there was an oral agreement. Maybe everybody in the family knew and agreed that's what would happen. Well, then maybe, just maybe, that property is supposed to go over to the trust and a Hegstat petition might be appropriate to try and get it in there. With the trustee of the trust claiming in the Hegstat, this property is supposed to be trust property by agreement of the parties. Now, that's a very, very remote shot. I don't see that as working very well, but it's possible. It might work if the fact situation was right. Here, how can beneficiaries on an irrevocable trust be added or changed in California? Now, irrevocable trust means that typically means that whoever created the trust is probably deceased now. In this case, older sister is the only one listed as a beneficiary. And everybody wants to add the other two sisters to the trust as beneficiaries. Well, here's the short answer. If the original creator of the trust is still alive and the older sister who beneficiary agrees and the two of them agree, they could, under the law, by agreement, actually modify that irrevocable trust to include the two other sisters as beneficiaries. That is specifically provided for in the probate code, section 15404. However, if the creator of that trust is deceased now, then the sister uh, would have to petition the court under probate code section 15403 to modify the trust to add the other sisters as beneficiaries. Um, this is something that could be done. I do those now and then uh, to modify a trust, maybe to add a general power of appointment like I talked about in the earlier in the show, maybe to remove the requirement that someone actually divide the trust property at the death of the first spouse because there's no estate tax reason to do it anymore. But that is the reason why we have 15403 to modify a trust that is irrevocable and might otherwise not be able to be modified. So we're coming up in the end of the third segment of the show today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please feel free to call 800-516-1220. When I come back after the break, we'll have the final segment, rounding the far turn, heading for home. So until after the break, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, and I'll be back in a few minutes. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. Well, today seems to have been uh, Hegstat Day. Um, 
someone out of San Diego asked the question, how does a Hegstat ruling approve putting something back in a trust? Well, the whole purpose of a Hegstat petition, which, by the way, comes from a court case that involved a person named Hegstat. Uh, the purpose of a Hegstat is to try and keep the courts free from unnecessary probate actions. That's that's what I think is a major purpose of a Hegstat petition. If there's a trust and property should have been in a trust, then it makes no sense to have it go through the entire probate process just to get turned over to the trust when a judge with a simple stroke of a pen can sign an order declaring that it is in fact in the trust. So a Hegstat ruling or a court decision for Hegstat where the judge signs an order, uh, that right there is an order stating that the property is in fact in the trust and was in the trust all along, either when the person owned it during lifetime, that it was uh, it came to them after they died and it was intended to go into the trust. That's the purpose of a Hegstat and the purpose of a Hegstat ruling. Um, and that's how it approves. It approves because it's a court order and it's specifically authorized in the probate code to to have that result. Now, if you look up the probate code, you're not going to find Hegstat in the probate code. That is just the shorthand we use in the legal profession for this type of petition. It's actually... Um, it's actually uh, a petition under probate code 850 and probate code 17200. Uh, both of those working together actually end up with the Hegstat petition. Here's a question out of Southern California, Huntington Beach. Um, I don't know if you know people down there. Can the executor designated in a will be changed without a request from a living spouse. The original will of dad says executors will be in order child number two, number three, then number one. It was changed and mother and child number one say they did not know anything about it. Okay, it was changed. That that begs the question, who changed it? If the dad changed his will, then his wife, mom, would not need to be involved in dad changing his will. Uh, even if they're married, even if they were still married. Um, the, now, they they owe a duty to each other to keep each other informed of the estate planning decisions that they're making. Uh, that's because of the marriage. But... The um, the mom didn't have to request that that be done. So the um, fact that she didn't know about it, this kind of suggests that dad has passed away and now the family's trying to sort out that the will doesn't say what they expected it to say. Um, maybe now it uh, excludes the mom as being the executor of the will, which um, could indicate that dad was having some issues toward the end of his life with his wife and decided he would rather have one of his children be the executor for his will. Um, it sounds like this particular family does not have a trust uh, at all in place. 
here. Okay, this is an interesting one right here. Here we've got um, trust here in California. Can the trustee distribute money to other children of someone listed as a beneficiary if it's okayed by the beneficiary? Here, grandma passed. One of the beneficiaries would prefer that the money go directly to her children. Okay, here you need to take a look at grandma's trust. If grandma's trust says, I give um, $200,000 to my daughter Jane, and if Jane is deceased to her descendants, Jane's children, then um, Jane could basically um, do what's called a disclaimer. She could have a written disclaimer saying, I do not want to receive this property. A disclaimer is basically, treat me as if I'm already deceased. And if grandma's trust says, if Jane's deceased, it goes to her kids, that's how Jane could get it to be distributed to her own children. And uh, that's the way she as the beneficiary would say it's okay with her because she would have actually executed a disclaimer. Here, okay, her ex-wife claims there's a trust for my kids. They received the money at age 18. Do I have a right to see the trust document? Uh, X says, I'm not allowed to see the documents. I'm filing out financial aid documents for college as I am the custodial parent. I want to know what the trust is, how much money they get, and when and who's the trustee. As legal guardian, do I have a right to see the trust? I think the answer is yes. Because as a legal guardian, you have a right to know what assets the children have, especially how they might be available or not available when applying for financial aid. An incorrect application for financial aid that turns out to be false later could blow their aid for them. Well, this is uh, the end of the day today. I'm coming up on the end of the show. Remember, I have a seminar tomorrow morning in my office starting at 9 o'clock. Visit lawbob.com for more information or go to eventbrite.com. Search for the Living Trust Seminar. So I hope to see you tomorrow. If you're going to come to the seminar, that would be great. Otherwise, until next week, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and I'll be back next Friday. Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.